Well, I'm really excited today because uh, this morning we're beginning a series that we're going to be in for a number of weeks on the book of Exodus. And I love the book of Exodus. It's the second book in your Bible. And And in Genesis, in the very first book of the Bible, we kind of begin with this kind of foundational understanding of creation and of God's intention for humans and how he intends for us to live. And we hear some of the most kind of memorable stories in the Bible we hear in the book of Genesis. And then we move into the book of Exodus where we really start to see God's heart to redeem his people. God's heart to do anything that he needs to do to redeem his people. And the book of Exodus begins with the story of Moses, which may be familiar to you. But if you're not familiar with the story, one of the things that is very interesting about the story of Moses is that in many ways, it kind of shadows and reflects the story that we will see in the life of Jesus in the New Testament. So so Moses is born at a time where he is born with the intention of redeeming people, just like Jesus. Moses is born at a time where the government is trying to kill baby boys and end his life, just like Jesus. Both Moses and Jesus fast in the wilderness for 40 days. Both end up feeding multitudes. Moses is the one who builds the Ark of the Covenant so that people can experience the presence of God. And Jesus is the one who comes and makes a way so that we can carry the presence of God. And so we see kind of these shadows and these similarities in the story of Moses and in the story of Jesus. And so when we first started out and I was first thinking about this series and where we would begin, I was going to begin this series with probably for many of you, a very familiar story of the call of Moses. There's this incredible, miraculous moment where Moses sees a burning bush that is not being burnt up, and he hears the voice of God calling him, specifically telling him that he will be the one to redeem his people, to redeem the children of Israel. And that's where we were going to start, and we were going to kind of breeze through some of the early parts of Moses' story and get there. But the more I began to dive into it, the more I realized that so often we always skip to the most extraordinary parts of somebody's story. That so often we jump right to the most interesting, right to the most miraculous, right to the most uh, uh, amazing parts of people's story. But the problem is we will not fully appreciate the significance of the call that Moses received if we don't realize the cost to even get to that moment. The cost to even get to the call. See, so often we see and we want what other people have, but we don't want to do what they did to get what they have. And so we want the reward without the sacrifice. We want the call and the significance and the reminder that we are people of faith like Moses had, but we don't necessarily want to walk through what Moses walked through. And what tends to happen when that is the case is that sometimes we feel like we're going through hard times. We feel like we're up against, uh, we're up against difficulties. We're up against things that we did not expect to face. And we think that we're facing them because we missed it somewhere. But the truth is, so often the difficulties that we face aren't because we missed it somewhere, but because we haven't gotten to where we're even supposed to be yet. Moses had to go through a lot of difficulties before he even got to the call of God on his life. And his story reminds us of that. I've seen this so many times in my own life where I've wanted to quit before I even got to the point that I was supposed to be at. I wanted to quit before I even realized the purpose in what God was doing in my life. And Moses reminds us that sometimes we are not walking through tough seasons because we've missed it, but because we haven't even gotten there yet. 
And it's in those moments that the enemy would love for you to quit before you even get to the call. Because if you pick up Moses' story, when he's experienced the burning bush, he's experienced the call of God on his life, Moses at that point has something that he can hold on to. He has something that he can look to in those difficult times, in those moments where his back is up against the wall and he's questioning his identity, he's questioning where he came from, he's questioning the call of God on his life. At least he has that moment that he can point to where he can say, I I have all of these questions, I have all of these concerns, I feel like I'm up against it, but there was this miraculous moment where I saw a burning bush that was not being burnt up and I heard the voice of God. That's something pretty strong to hold on to to help you continue to take steps forward. But I think what's incredible about the life of Moses is that he was able to persevere and step forward before he even had that moment. And it was that perseverance, it was that faith that got him to that moment that I want to talk about today. Because, oh, excuse me, the circumstances that Moses was born into were extravagant. The the deck was stacked against him. If we look in beginning in Exodus chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 8 through 16. You'll see the beginning of Moses' story and why his back was so up against the wall really before he was even born. And the book of Exodus kind of begins recapping a bit of the story of Joseph and how the children of Israel became the children of Israel. And then it says, Then a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put, so they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Remesis as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites, And worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labor in brick and mortar, and with all kind of work in the field. In all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, When you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill them. If it is a girl, let them live. If it is a boy, kill them. If it is a girl, let them live. Again, this is a similarity to the story of Jesus, where where the highest power in the land is saying, I want all boys eliminated because there is a boy coming who is a threat. And so the best way to eliminate the threat is to just eliminate all of the male children that are being born. Can you imagine the stress of this pregnancy for Moses' mother? I mean, pregnancy is stressful enough in and of itself. But see, at this time, they had no way of knowing whether this child was a boy or a girl until the day it was born. And so for nine, ten months, this mother carried this child wondering if the day that she gave birth to it was going to be a dream come true or her worst nightmare. Because simply by the fact that this child could be born a boy meant that this child could have a death sentence the moment it arrived on the earth. And so the stress of this pregnancy had to be incredible. Uh, during Kristen's first pregnancy, we were pregnant, or she was pregnant, I was not. She was pregnant with 
our now almost 12-year-old, Isabella. And at the time, we lived about an hour away from the doctor that was going to be delivering the baby. We had moved in the course of the pregnancy, but we loved our doctor, so we stuck with her. And we drove about an hour every time to have these appointments. And towards the end of a pregnancy, you have an appointment about every week that you wait like two hours for, and the appointment takes like two minutes. They just check the vitals, they make sure everything's good, and they say, see you again next week. And so we did this time and time again, but towards the end of those appointments, because we were so far away, we started bringing our bag and stuff with us in case they asked us to stay. We started having our stuff with us. And I'll never forget the last appointment that we had. Kristen was at the time a week overdue. She was ready to go. She was a week overdue, but Bella was not ready to come. She was just as comfortable as can be in there, and she had, it was showing no signs of, of giving birth. And so we came for the appointment, and the doctor looked at all of the vitals. She looked at everything that was going on. She came back into the room, and she said, I don't want you to be alarmed, but, which is a phrase that doctors should quit using. Because the moment a doctor says, I don't want you to be alarmed, but alarm bells are ringing so loud that you generally do not even hear what they say next. And she said, we need to take you down and kind of hook you up to a machine. And we're not overly concerned, but we want to watch these vitals for like another hour or so and just see kind of if what we see in these is consistent over the next hour or so. And so they, they hook her up to a machine and we just sit down there for an hour and we're waiting and we don't know what we're looking at, but we're looking at the screens. We're trying to figure out what's going on. They come back in after an hour and they explain that based on the heartbeat and the breathing patterns that they're seeing coming from Bella, they believe that the cord is wrapped around her neck and that it, it's not necessarily serious or life-threatening. They could get her out immediately if they needed to, but they can just see that when, when Kristen breathes or when Kristen moves, that there's some change in Bella's breathing. There's some change in her heart rate that would indicate that when that happens, it's tightening a bit around her neck and she's not breathing as well. So they say, we want to go ahead and induce labor. And, and, and so they induced labor. And when she gave birth to Bella, to this day, I can still see when Bella came out, she was purple and the cord was wrapped around her neck multiple times. And I, I honestly, in that moment, there, there was about 30 seconds where I had never seen a childbirth. I did not know what a childbirth looked like. I did not know what a child should look like when they came out, but it didn't look great to me. And there was about 20 to 30 seconds where I literally was not sure if she was alive because she did not immediately scream. She did not immediately cry. The doctors seemed uh, like elevated, but not super uh, uh, concerned. They unwrapped the cord from her neck. They jostled her around. They kind of slapped her around a bit. And she let out a giant cry, which was like the most relief I felt in my life. Because it, for those 20 to 30 seconds, there was the thought that ran through my head that this child that we've anticipated for the last nine months may not actually be a reality. And I cannot imagine the stress and the fear and the anxiety of feeling what I felt for 30 seconds for the entirety of a pregnancy. Just wondering, will this child be born and immediately taken from me? This is the environment that Moses was born into. But what's incredible is the story goes on to tell us that the midwives who helped deliver the babies at the time did not honor the Pharaoh's edict to kill the Hebrew baby boys. And when he called them on it, they basically said, these Hebrew women give birth really fast. And by the time we get there, they're already given birth. And so Pharaoh says, well, if you're not going to do that, then once they're born, throw them into the Nile River. And so we pick up the story again in Exodus 2, verses 1 through 10. 
And it tells the story of Moses being born. It says, now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw that the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. So Moses' mother puts him in a basket and sends him down the Nile River to try to, in some way, preserve his life because the Bible says she can no longer hide him. And in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, I I referenced this last week, there's only two chapters in the Bible that are devoted completely to one topic. One is in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13, where it talks about love. The other is in Hebrews 11, where it kind of lists this hall of faith, people that lived great lives of faith. And we get a little more insight into why Moses's mother did what she did in Hebrews 11 verse 23. It says, by faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Because they saw that he was no ordinary child, his parents hid him. See, Moses had to be hidden so that he was not killed before he reached his purpose. And I think for some of you that maybe feel like you're in a season where you are hidden, you you feel like you are tucked away, you feel like you are hidden, it may very well be that you are being hidden so that you can be preserved for the moment that God calls you. That you can be hidden so that the moment that your purpose comes to fruition, you have not been touched by the enemy. That, That sometimes things are so significant that they have to be hidden as to not be taken out. And so here's this basket, and he's discovered by none other than Pharaoh's daughter. And this is the same Pharaoh who put out the law that all baby boys should be killed. His daughter finds this baby, and I love this moment where Moses' sister, it says, watches to see what would happen, because it's such a sibling move to kind of keep an eye on what's happening. And can you imagine as a little girl knowing that just because you're a little girl, you get to keep your life, but you have to let go of this baby brother that you've been hiding in your home for some time. And so she watched to see what what happens. And Pharaoh's daughter finds him and has compassion on him. But then Moses' sister makes a courageous choice. She speaks to Pharaoh's daughter and says, should I find somebody to nurse him for you? Now, this is only a few words in one sentence in the Bible, but I don't want us to pass over the significance of this moment because Moses' sister was a Hebrew girl who would have had very little value in the society in which she was living. She really had no business speaking up to anybody, much less royalty. And yet in this moment, she sees an opportunity and she speaks into the moment, a solution for the moment. 
And so often for God's purpose to unveil, it's going to take people who feel unqualified speaking into a moment that they feel unqualified to speak into. And this is kind of a side note and not really even part of the message, but I also love that in this moment, what we see is Pharaoh has put out this law that all of the male children should be killed. And so what we've seen so far in the story is that the midwives did not obey the order and Moses's mother did not obey the order and Pharaoh's daughter found the child and Moses's sister spoke into the moment. It's almost as if God was saying to this situation, Pharaoh, if you want to silence all the men, then I will raise up a bunch of women who are still going to move my purpose forward. Because I I don't need to work within your parameters. I can raise up whoever I need to raise up to speak into this moment. And so now what we have, because Moses' sister spoke into the situation, we have a circumstance that could have never been imagined by anyone. Moses is being raised by his own mother in the palace of the person who wanted to kill him. And, and, and by the way, side note, the Bible says that Pharaoh's daughter was paying Moses' mother to raise her own child. All the moms said, I mean, come on, this is a deal that cannot be refused. And so in this moment, she spoke up and Moses is being raised in the palace. And what I love about this, among many things, is that I think so often as Christians, uh, we get very concerned about things we should not be concerned about. And in this moment, I just think it's important that we recognize that the government was unable to stop God's plan. That the government had put out an order to to kill all of the male babies, and yet still God was able to move his purpose forward. And not only could they not stop his plan, it's as though God said, not only can you not stop what I'm going to do, I'll just make you a part of what I'm going to do. Like, like I'm going to use someone in your own house to raise up the person who will deliver my people from you. And what's incredible about this is that in this time, only royals were educated. Only royals had the finances to be educated. Only royals could hire teachers to be educated. And so Moses learns to read and write in the palace, and then he writes the first five books of the Old Testament. Moses learns the lessons of leadership and government in the palace, and then he leads God's people out of bondage from the palace. Moses learns military and battle and strategy in the palace, and then he uses that military strategy in battle against the palace. And what's incredible about that to me is that God used the very person who wanted to take Moses' life to teach him everything he needed to know to fulfill his purpose. And, and what that tells me is that circumstance that you're walking through, that family situation that you're living in, that person that you think might just be the end of your life might also just be teaching you everything you need to know to fulfill the purpose in your life. And that's what we see in the life of Moses. And isn't it interesting that when Moses' daughter pulls Moses out of the Nile River, she's the one who names him. And she names him Moses, which means drawn out, because she drew him out of the Nile. But I also think it's a reminder to never underestimate who and what God can use to draw out the potential in your life. That he was drawn out of the Nile, and we thought that it just saved his life, but it didn't just save his life. It also equipped him for the life that God had for him. 
And so often we end up in these situations that we think are working against us, but we don't realize behind the scenes God is working for us. And then Moses grows up and he really begins to realize that he belongs nowhere. He sits in the palace, but he is not Egyptian. And he watches as his own people live in slavery, but he does not join in their bondage. He does not join in their slavery. He just watches as they live in slavery. And we pick up his story again in Exodus 2, verses 11 through 14, where it says, One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Glancing this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day, he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I have done, what I did must have become known. And what's interesting really about this moment is we may not realize it, but what we are seeing in this moment is Moses trying to live out his destiny in his own strength. Moses doesn't even know it yet, but he is called to, to bring the Israels, uh, Israelites out of slavery, out of bondage from the Egyptians. And in this moment, he sees an Egyptian beating one of his own people, and he takes matters into his own hands. And, and now he is known as a murderer, and he runs for his life into the desert where the Bible tells us that he becomes a shepherd and, and that he has a son who he names to essentially mean, I now am in a foreign land. I belong nowhere. And at this point in his life, Moses seems like the most unlikely person that God would call to do anything of significance. He's about 40 years old. He's in hiding. He's not where he's supposed to be. He's not doing what he's supposed to be doing. He's committed murder. He's unclear on who he is or what he is doing. And yet it's in this moment that Moses makes some decisions that lead him to his destiny that he makes some decisions that move him forward. If you look again in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, picking up in verse 24, this is what it says about Moses and what he did. It says, By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasure of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who was invisible. See, the first thing that Moses did in the desert was he decided who he would be. He decided who he would be. Verse 24 says that in that moment, he made the decision not to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. That he made the decision not to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. See, growth requires you to take responsibility for your life. And he made that decision. In fact, I think it's no mistake that the Bible leads that verse by saying, when he had grown up, he decided that he would no longer be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, that he had some growth and maturity to do. And growth requires you to take responsibility for your life. 
Because what you need to realize as you grow and mature is that you get to decide what defines you. You get to decide what defines you. See, we like so often to shift responsibility. If my wife would get this or that together, our relationship would be better. If I came from a better family, my relationships would be better. If my job paid me more, I would be more generous. But some of you need to experience the growth and maturity that only comes from taking personal responsibility for your life and personal responsibility for what defines you. See, the Bible says when Moses fled, what he had done was known. What he had done was known. It was what he was known for, what was for murdering this Egyptian. And yet who he was now, he was making the choice of what he would be known for. And I wonder what it is for you and what it is for me that we need to decide that we will no longer be known for that we will decide that we will no longer be associated with, that we will decide that it will no longer affect our identity. What is it in your life? What is it in your family history that you have to say, I will no longer be known for this? See, there are some things that we need to outgrow in our lives. There are some things we need to outgrow. We need to outgrow. We need to outgrow needing validation and approval from everyone else about the direction of our life. We need to outgrow the validation of everybody else. We need to outgrow the approval of everyone else. There's even this moment in the book of Acts where it says that Moses believed that the Hebrews would understand that he was trying to deliver them, but they did not. Even the people that he would eventually lead out of bondage did not understand his purpose. They did not understand how he was tied to their destiny. And there are some things that we need to grow out of. If you have kids, you know that they go through phases where they grow in and out of things. But one of the things that is fairly constant for many years of their lives is that they will wake you up at night. And it goes through different phases, though. When they are a baby, they cry out in the night, and you kind of have compassion for them because they're a child, and there's nothing they can do for themselves. If they're hungry, they need you to feed them. If their diaper is wet, they need you to change them. If they are cold, they need you to put a blanket on them. They need you to do everything for them. And then usually there comes a point when they're a baby where they start sleeping through the night, and you feel like a refreshed, real human being, and everything feels great. And then you move them into their first bed, and they realize that they can get up on their own and now come get you. So now they realize that they used to have to cry out and you would come to them, but now they realize that they can get up and come to you. And so next thing you know, in the middle of the night, there's like a, just a silhouette standing by your bed. It's terrifying. I don't, know why, I don't know why children can't wake you up in a normal fashion, but it's always like something from a horror movie. And it's impossible to recover from. When your adrenaline gets going like that at night, you're not going back to sleep. They're always standing by your bed. And I remember that, that there was you know, a season where Bella, when she was like three, four years old, she would get up and she would come to our room and she would ask for water. And then there was years where no one was waking us up because her and Sophia were both kind of old enough that they were sleeping through the night. They were taking care of themselves. And then one random night when Bella was like eight or nine years old, she came and she shakes me and she wakes me up and I think something is wrong. I think maybe she's had a horrible dream. And she says, no, she needs a glass of water. And I was like, you can get yourself a glass of water. You should have outgrown needing me to get you the glass of water. 
And I think so often in our spiritual lives, we do not outgrow things that we need to outgrow. We want someone else to give us what we can get for ourselves. And we do not need the validation of everyone else to tell us when we can and can't move forward in our purpose. We can get that from God and we can get that from ourselves. There are some things we need to outgrow. Moses had made a decision that he wanted to separate who he was from the trauma he experienced in his family and the decisions he had personally made. See, it wasn't just his family situation that caused him trauma, which it did. Growing up questioning his identity, living as an Egyptian royal, knowing that he should be a Hebrew slave, and balancing those two things. But, but then he came to a place where he made the decision to commit murder, and now he has to come to terms with that. And so he is deciding that not only am I going to separate myself from the family trauma that I've experienced, I'm going to separate myself from the things that I did in the past, and I will no longer be known for those things. He knew that he did not want to become what he had grown up in. He knew that he did not want to become what he had grown up in. So at first, he ran which is really the default for all of us when we decide we don't want to be something. We run from it. And that's what Moses is doing in this moment. But God had a different plan. See, God looked at Moses' situation and he said, I know that you don't want to become what you grew up in, but you don't have to run from it. You can learn from it. And then I'm going to use you to bring other people out of it. And God said, you know, Moses, because you know the palace so well, and because you know the Hebrew culture so well, there is no one more qualified to do what I'm calling you to do than you are. So, so often we run from things that we need to learn from. See, God does not cause everything that happens to you, but he also does not waste anything that happens to you. God does not waste anything that happens to you. The Bible says in Romans 8, 28, that God works all things together for the good of those who follow him. It does not say that all things are good. It just says that he will work them all for good, which means that when you end up living in the palace of the person who wanted you killed, God can look down on that situation and say, I can use that and I can turn that situation into the breeding ground for you to fulfill your purpose. See, too often we give up when really what we need to do is grow up and keep going. We give up before we even reach our purpose, before we even reach our call, because it gets too hard, it gets too difficult, it gets too confusing, and we really just need to grow up and take steps forward instead of giving up. Because truthfully, giving up is easy. Like, I don't know about you, but giving up, there's a momentary sense of relief when you give up on something. But notice I said momentary sense of relief. Like, I don't know if you've ever had plans and then the plans got canceled. Maybe it's just me, but almost always there's a moment where I'm like, this is great. This is great. I now, I had something to do and now I don't. But the, the, the truth is that when you give up on something, when you quit on something, you also quit on what that thing could teach you and where that thing could take you. And so there may be a momentary sense of relief, but, but there is an ultimate sense of loss for what you did not receive from that thing that you quit. And Moses makes the decision not to quit. Moses makes the, the decision to keep moving forward. That was the first thing he did. 
is that he decided who he was. Number two is that he determined his priorities. Verse 26, if you can put that one back up there, verse 26, he determined his priorities. And this is what Hebrews chapter 11 says about Moses in that moment. It says, He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. Because he was looking ahead to his reward. See, Moses already had everything that most people spend their lives trying to acquire. Moses already had positions, he already had possessions, he already had security. He chose to give those things up because he had his eyes fixed on what he determined to be greater. And notice that the things he had were not bad things. The things that he had were not bad things. He, he had possessions. He had position. They weren't necessarily bad things. They were good things, but he was looking ahead to something better. See, you can always find a way to regret your past. You can always find a way to regret your past. Even if your past is positive or negative, you can find a way to regret it. See, Moses could have looked at his past in a positive light and said, I had everything that I ever needed. I had security, I had comfort, I had riches, I had position, I had a future, and I should have never left that past. Or Moses could have looked at his past in a negative light with regret and said, the decisions I've made in my life disqualify me from moving forward. That I chose to live as an Egyptian in royalty, knowing that I really belonged with the slaves. He could have regretted his choice to commit murder, and he could have looked back and said, because of that, I am not qualified to move forward. But Moses chose not to look back on his life in regret in either a positive or negative life. See, Moses could not choose who he was born to or who he was raised by, but he could determine his priorities. He could determine his priorities, and that's what he chose to do. And then finally, he persevered. He persevered. In verse 27, it says, for the sake of what was ahead, he persevered. It says, by faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who was invisible. See, once you decide who you were made to be and you determine your priorities, it's still going to take perseverance to move forward. There will still be days where you are tempted to quit. There will still be days where you're tempted to throw in the towel. And if that's you this morning and you're in this place and you are feeling tempted to quit, let me just encourage you to keep going. Let me just encourage you that you may not have even reached the most significant thing that God will tell you or teach you or show you in your life. That, that, that you may not have even reached the call of God on your life. See, Moses was 40 years old before he made the choice to live into the identity of who God created him to be. He was 40 years old, and then he was 80 years old before that purpose even came to pass. You've got to keep going. You cannot quit. It may not be coming quick enough. It may not feel like it's happening fast enough. And the key is perseverance. The key is to keep going. The key is to keep taking steps and not to quit on what God is doing in your life. 
not to quit on what God is doing in your life, to trust that what he has for you will come to pass, that his purpose will come to pass. Your past is not, it is not even a factor in what God wants to do in your life. God can use any and everything that has happened to you or that you have done to shape the purpose and destiny that he has on your life. Would you stand with me and bow your heads this morning all across this room?